Lord, we ask that you would send forth your word, um, send forth your Holy Spirit to and guide us now as we study your holy word, your holy scripture. And we ask that in the studying of your word, you would reveal to us who it is who loves us most. Reveal to us your son, Jesus Christ, and reveal to us just how much um, you have done for us in and through his life and his death and his resurrection. So we ask all of this for your glory and for our benefit, um, that you would bear forth fruit in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. So, um, it, remember, this is a part where we look at what we've done and say, okay, wh- where are we? Where are we in the Gospel of John? I find it so helpful, as you probably know by now, to look at the geography and say, where are we geographically? Where are we in the narrative that John is telling us about Jesus' life and ministry and then his death. What is going on in John? Does anybody remember? We started sort of at the beginning of the semester in John, finishing up John chapter 6. Do you remember what happened in John chapter 6? I'm going a little bit back. I like to pull out and get the big picture because then as we zoom in, it puts it all into context. We can say, oh... There's more significance to what's going on than what we might otherwise notice. Remember John 6? They were going to the tabernacle. We did start. We finished up John 6, and Jesus was up north. And I'm gesturing up because Galilee, hmm, oh, whiteboard. Um, So here's the Mediterranean Sea, right? And if this were the land of Israel, it's bordered on this side by... That's a river. That's the Jordan. Up here, you kind of have a sort of northern, the northern kingdom of Israel, kind of centered up in Samaria here, and then also Galilee, which was up by the Sea of Galilee, which is like here. And then down here, you have Jerusalem, roughly speaking. And so Jesus had been up here, remember, for the feeding of the 5,000. And that's when he said, I am the bread of life. And he talked a lot about being the bread of life. Remember that? That that was all John chapter 6. And his saying was too hard for some disciples, and they fell away. Because he was literally saying, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. And can you just picture the other disciples, the ones who stayed with Jesus, saying, you think you could tone down that language? We're going to keep losing people if you don't. Um, so he was, he was up in Galilee, and he was there, and he was with his brothers at the beginning of chapter 7, remember? And the brothers were going down to Jerusalem for the pilgrimage. The, you know, there are several, I think it's three, two or three, oh, um, pilgrimages down to Jerusalem where all of the faithful male Jews, especially males, in the um, diaspora, which means the spread of the Jews all around the Mediterranean basin and out east towards Babylon, remember where they went into exile previously, there they would go on pilgrimage to Jerusalem, to the temple, to worship in the temple for these important feasts. And one of those important feasts is the Feast of Tabernacles, which we see introduced at the beginning of chapter 7. And then what happens, remember, his brothers say, well, why don't you go down to the feast where you can do all these miracles in public and then everyone will see that you're the Messiah. And Jesus kind of rebuffs them and says, no, I'm not going down. I'm not going with you. I'm not going in public. And then he goes later in 
private, and he appears there in the temple and then starts teaching. And people don't know who he is because he didn't travel in a big group, in a big caravan like um, most people normally would have to go down there for, um, for the feast. And so in Jerusalem, we saw his teaching throughout chapter 7 and 8, and his teaching is so specific to this feast of the tabernacles that it helps us to remember, well, what was that feast for? What was going on? What were the Jewish people remembering and celebrating during that feast? Does anybody have any ideas? Do you remember at all? Trudy? Right, when they lived in tents, because a tabernacle is a tent. And that the tabernacle was the tent that God lived in when he dwelt with them in the, in the desert. Remember, he had Moses. He gave Moses the plan. He gave Moses not just the Ten Commandments to give them as a moral code, but he also gave them the, the, the architectural plans for this elaborate tent where God would dwell, where the people of Israel would enter into relationship with God and um, worship him in that space, that specific space. So God dwelt with them in the desert. And then there were also, do you remember what themes we had talked about were important in that time in the desert? And there are images, elemental images, that were used for them during that time of wandering in the desert that they then brought back and used in the way they celebrated the feast. Do you remember what those were? Yes, water. Why water? Mm-hmm. Yep. Remember Moses struck the rock, they're thirsty and cranky, and he struck the rock and the water spurted out. And so that miracle, bread, there is bread, manna in the wilderness, and that's something, I'm not sure, I don't remember the specifics of how that played into the Feast of the Tabernacles, but there was something else, and Jesus references it specifically in John chapter 8, verse 12. Um, and I'm giving you a clue. So there was the water, and he had said in John chapter 7, referencing the water, kind of alluding to this water, which then in the desert, it had come out of the rock, right? And in the feast, they would have this libation, which is a pouring out of water in the temple, because then the tabernacle had been done away with in Solomon built the temple, remember, and then this is the second temple that Jesus is worshiping in. And there, during the feast, they would pour out water every day as a way of remembering that water that came out of the rock. So with the water imagery, whoops, um, Jesus says in John um, 7, 37 through 38, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Remember, that was really the climax to his teaching in chapter 7. That was the, the crux of what he was saying. It was building up to that. And at that point, um, you continue to see people dividing about who is he and are we going to believe in him? Is he the Messiah or is he just a prophet or is he a crazy man? I mean, what, what is going on with this person, Jesus? And they keep trying to get him to tell them. And remember, he is sitting there just like... Um, a little boy scout fanning a flame, trying to get the flame to start. He is trying to coax their faith along. He's challenging them. He is um, stepping back and hoping that they will incline in faith and step forward and believe in him. He is trying to fan their belief in him into flame. Um, And it works with some people and it 
well, it doesn't work with other people. And you see they continue to divide about who is this man Jesus and what is, why is he here? And in the, um, the next image that we see in chapter 8, do you remember that image? Yep, light. Remember that in the desert, the Israelites, um, they had to f- know where to go and they followed God and God gave them, provided for them a way to know where to go, a road map in the desert. Fire, that's right. Fire at night and during the day it was cloud, a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire. And that pillar of fire was what they remembered with thanksgiving that God provided light for them to see by and light that would guide them into the promised land, that would guide them to where God wanted them to go. So you see that reflected in the Psalms, Psalm 119, thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Um, that, that concept of light being good and coming from God and guiding and directing us, bringing us out into um, the place where he wants us to go, bringing us salvation. So when Jesus then says, well, first of all, in, in the feast there at the Feast of Tabernacles in the temple, they had great big lamps that they would light in a special ceremonial way each day. And that reminded them, it was meant to remind them of the pillar of fire that they had followed, their ancestors had followed in the desert. So Jesus is taking that image of the light and the image of the the water, and he's basically saying, those things that you saw in the desert, that your ancestors saw, they were precursors to me. And God's purpose, the way God used them in your life as a people in the past is completely fulfilled in me, in who I am as the light of the world, as the the rock that water will come forth from. So any thoughts or questions about that before we go on to where we are right now in John chapter 9? Anyone? Is that a question? No? Okay. I can never tell because some people have questions that don't involve hands. <laughs> Is that helpful? Yeah, I've missed a couple of times. So that good. And for those of whom it's the, you know, several, you've already heard it several times, uh, forgive me. I think I can never hear it enough. I always want to hear it more often. So, um, any qu- seriously though, are there any questions about that? Do you want to say, we don't see how this tabernacle stuff applies to chapter 7 and chapter 8. Um, why is this important for chapter 9? Well, let's read. We're going to read. We're going to read chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. And um, whoever would do, would someone like to volunteer to read? Lenora? Oh, and Betsy, will you share it, the two of you? So one start. Betsy, will you start? And Lenora will pick up wherever you stop. And we're just reading the seven, first seven verses of chapter 9. Like yes, 1 to 7. So why don't you read 1 to 3, and then if Lenora can pick up at 4. Having said these things, 
He spat on the ground and made mud with saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sin. So he went and washed and came back seeing. How wonderful. After all this theological dialogue, we get another miracle. How, how wonderful. I, I really I appreciate the miracles interspersed in there with all the theological dialogue. Because sometimes the theological dialogue gets confusing. You don't know where you are or what, what's going on. How, any thoughts about why would this be here? Why would John tell the story of this miracle right here? While Jesus is still in Jerusalem, you know, it, it, it happened in Jerusalem. It really happened. really happened in the temple. We're not sure if it happened right after what happened in verse um, 59 of chapter 8. Do, can, does someone want to just read that? This will refresh our memories from two weeks ago, what just happened. So they picked up the stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Jesus almost just died. Because he said, before Abraham was, I am. He said the divine name, the name of Yahweh, which is I am who I am, I am. And he also, um, and it was forbidden for Jews to say the name of God, even though it was a basic verbal construction in their language. They were forbidden to say the name of God out of respect for God's holiness. They really believed they would be struck down if they did, that it was blasphemy even to be that familiar with God that you would know his name. Because knowing someone's name gave you some sort of power over the person. So to say God's name is blasphemous. And then what he is saying about Abraham and how he existed even before Abraham shows that he's claiming to be God. He's claiming to be pre-existent, pre-incarnate, to have existed before he was born as a little baby in Bethlehem. And um, they don't like that, and that breaks their law. If Jesus is a liar, then he's breaking the law. He's breaking the Jewish law, um, the Mosaic law, about blasphemy, and the consequences for blasphemy in ancient Israel were stoning. So they're following the law as best they know based on what they believe. What's so interesting is Jesus Jesus gets away. This is not the only time he escapes death. Um, he gets away, and as he passes by, so he's still in the temple, and he sees this man who is blind from birth. Well, this blindness and um, this actual event of the miracle in the other Gospels, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you see Jesus' miracles, and there are a lot more. They talk about them a lot more than John does. John has a lot more theology and um, exposition and teaching from Jesus. But in those other Gospels, you see a lot of the miracles. But with um, John, the miracles that he's chosen to put in the story, that he's telling, chosen to put in his Gospel, he chooses very carefully and very specifically for theological reasons. So why was this one of the ones that he chose? And what does he call his miracles? In John, the miracles are not just miraculous things that Jesus has done, as if that weren't enough. <laughs> How amazing that he really gave sight back to a man who was blind. But John is putting it right here so that we see that this miracle is not just a miraculous deed for the sake of wowing us, 
but it's a miraculous deed that is meant to be like a, a road sign. And sign is the word that John uses to describe Jesus' miracles. This is a sign that points to who Jesus is and that is meant to bring the person who sees the sign into saving faith in Jesus Christ by knowing who he is so that then when he would go to die a few chapters later, we, as we're reading John's Gospel, we say, Wow, behold the Son of Man. He is God in the flesh and he would even die the death of a slave and the death of a criminal for me. Um, so how could this miracle, the miracle of this sight restored to the blind man, how could this specifically um, give us a window into who Jesus is, especially based on what he was just saying in John chapter 8? I'm not following my outline. No one else was uh, doing miracles. No. No one else was. There's some thought historically that some of the rabbis and teachers would do miracles. You see in Acts, when they're traveling, when um, the apostles are traveling around the Mediterranean, there are in some places, there's Simon Magus, like he was able to do some kind of magical, supernatural miracles. And you see that there were often efforts in the rabbinic literature, which exists before Jesus' time, leading up to Jesus' time and after Jesus' time. You see that they believed that rabbis and men of faith who were following God, um, through those men of faith, miraculous things could happen. They believed in super, that God's supernatural power made manifest through human beings in a way that we don't. After the Enlightenment, we don't think... We don't think, when we pray for healing for someone, we don't naturally think, oh, they're going to be healed because we're praying. It's just the way we've been conditioned to think about God's involvement in the natural world, in the matters of the flesh. They, they didn't have that, that handicap that we have. So you'll see it elsewhere, but what you see about the way the Gospel writers showed Jesus doing the miracles that he did is that Jesus does them consistently. He does them with authority. They accompany authoritative teaching on the scriptures. They accompany claims to divinity. That's the real reason why he's able to do this. Not because he has some great magic technique. Um, does, that, does that help? You do see in the ancient world that other people were doing miracles. But the thing about this particular miracle, like this man born blind, was a much harder miracle to do. Um, and he'll, the, they talk about, like, for example, in Mark, the woman with the flow of blood for 12 years, that was a miracle, that was a harder miracle to do in their mindset. And you'll see that, that Je Jesus could even do that. That's kind of the subtext of what they're saying. But isn't it amazing? The miracle alone is an incredible thing. There's something specifically about being blind that John is drawing our attention to, too, and that Jesus is drawing our attention to. And you see it in what he says in verse 5. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. That echoes. Jesus being the light of the world. Doesn't that echo what he said in chapter 8, verse 12? He said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And so we see that blindness is not just a physical condition that Jesus came to heal, in, as he did with this one man, but that blindness is more than just physical. The blindness of the world is a spiritual blindness 
The blindness of the flesh is something that every single human being has because we are born blind. We are born um, with the um, spiritual blindness that's been passed down to us from our spiritual ancestors, Adam and Eve. And so um, this parable, this true miracle that actually happened, and yet I say parable because Jesus' parables, the stories he told, had theological significance on every point. And one of the things that John does, he lines up these miracles that happened historically that were real events and says there is so much theological significance and spiritual significance to what's going on here. Don't miss it. Don't stop at the miracle and say, wow, wasn't that great? Persist on into faith in Jesus Christ, a saving faith and a faith that will carry you throughout all the trials and burdens of our life on earth until he returns. Um, so that this is a sign. It's more than just what's happening in the physical and the natural. Um, I put on your sheet another man, another healing, another pool, another Sabbath. We don't have time to go into that this morning, but if you want something more when you go home or this week, beyond just the questions at the bottom of the sheet, which I've put, we're going to do the rest of Chapter 9 next week, which is kind of a monumental task. Um, but I want us to get through Chapter 10 um, before we break for the summer. So Chapter 9, we'll, be, we'll do, do that. But then also, if you were to read um, John 5 again and look at that miracle that Jesus does there, there he heals another man. There's another pool involved. There's, it's um, another Sabbath day. And the reaction of that man to Jesus is very different from the man's reaction in chapter 9 to Jesus. What happens when Jesus heals you? What is the reaction like? What is the response like? And we'll see a contrast between the man in chapter 5 who's healed from, from being paralyzed and the man in chapter 9 who's healed from being blind. So that's something that will help you prepare for next week if you happen to look at that. Um, but what, the reason why I bring it up here is because John is intentionally putting, there were so many miracles, so many things that Jesus said. Why did he put these things in this gospel that he was preaching and sending out to the churches? Well, there's something about John chapter 5 and John chapter 9 that he is intentionally putting there. He's showing the similarities in their physical circumstances, in the physical healing that happened, and then he's going to contrast the actual um, implications spiritually for each of the men. Um, So that's a little teaser for next week. Um, So John chapter 5 is something to look at. Um, Another thing that I would love for us to look at is Mark chapter 8, verse 22 through 26. And so if you can leave a finger in John chapter 9 and go back to Mark 8, what we'll see, blindness was something that Jesus delighted to cure. You'll see that there are, one of the commentators that I read said that there are more healings of blindness recorded in the Gospels than any other category of miracles done by Jesus. Is that incredible? More physical healings, more more um, more than physical healings, more uh, more than other physical healings like paralyzed man, or more than um, raising people from the dead. More he healed more blind men than lepers. He healed more blind men than um, nature miracles. And nature miracles include walking on water, the miraculous provision of um, and multiplication of bread and fish. All of those things. Blindness. If you were to do Statistically, blindness comes out on top 
which is just interesting. And the reason for that, well, healing of the blind is specifically associated with God himself throughout the Old Testament. And I can give you some, um, we're not going to look at them right now, but if you want some references for where you can find blindness throughout the Old Testament and God healing blindness, I can give that to you. Isaiah, the prophet, specifically associates the healing of blind men with the Messiah and says that it is something that the Messiah will do. The Messiah will heal people who are blind. And then you'll also see that um, John the Baptist, remember in the Synoptic Gospels, John the, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, John the Baptist comes to Jesus and says, are you the one that we've been waiting for? Are you him? Are you the right one? His disciples go to him even while... Because John wants to make sure that Jesus is the Messiah. He knows, thinks he knows, but he's just confirming with Jesus. And Jesus quotes um, Old Testament scripture and says, The blind see, the lame walk, and the good news is preached to the poor. Read, of course I'm the Messiah. (laughs) Here's how you know. Um, And so here's how we know, too, is in the healing of blind men. So... One of the things, I don't know about you, but two weeks ago, I liked, I liked this whiteboard. Maybe we'll have to get it as much as we can. But what I would love for us to do is look at the healing of the blind man in chapter 8 of Mark's gospel and in John. There are some similarities, but there are some differences. So what I would love for us to do, um, if you have it available, if you could just read, one person would read Mark chapter 8, who hasn't read yet. 822 through 26. And they came to Bethesda, and they brought a blind man to Jesus and implored him to touch him. Taking the blind man by the hand, he brought him out of the village, and after spitting on his eyes and laying his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see men, for I see them like trees walking around. Then again he laid his hands on his eyes, and he looked intently and was restored, began to see everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. Hmm. Thank you, Shirley. So what is the same? What do you see that's similar about these two accounts of Jesus' healing of blind men? And then we'll do the differences. What's similar? What? Saliva. Jesus used his saliva. Ew. What else? Well, the man was blind, and then he could see, right? I'll do the obvious ones. You do the other ones. We don't know if he was blind from birth. Yeah, that's so we'll have to put different. I might need more room for this. I, they probably would have said it, don't you think, Shirley? Any other differences? We might find more similarities once we start writing the um, differences. Yeah. 
Yep. Yeah. Two tries. Oops. Um, anything else? Does anybody know where we are in Mark? Where are we ge geographically? Remember that map I put up there? You might have to go a couple verses ahead of time, ahead of Mark. Bethsaida. Where's Bethsaida? Do you have a study Bible? Anybody have a study Bible that says where Bethsaida is? I know, but I like I like bringing <laughs> Does anyone have a study Bible where it will say it in the... Um, so it was north, right, by the Sea of Galilee. Where is our man healed in John? Yes. He's in Jerusalem. Does Jesus tell the man to do anything in either account? Go home and be quiet, right? And the other one, he doesn't say that, right? And um, does he tell the man in John to do anything? What does he tell him to do? He goes, he says, go wash. He puts, he spits on the ground, he makes some mud, puts the mud on his eyes. Thank you, Jesus. Put some mud on my eyes. But he didn't know that. He was blind and he was, didn't realize and it was worth it to be healed. And then he went and was, Jesus told him to wash. Yeah. Yes, that is in Mark, you see especially, that Mark is emphasizing the secrecy of Jesus' mission, whereas other gospel writers are not, because it's not as important to them. But for Mark, it was really important. There's so much ink spilled academically about, well, why is Mark telling people, you know, in Mark, why do we hear Jesus telling people, shh, don't tell anyone? Well, remember how in John, and they're meant to inform each other. John is writing, knowing what the other gospel, probably knowing what the other gospel writers have written, and he's writing other stuff so that you can have a fuller picture of who Jesus is. And um, in John, we see Jesus getting killed, almost getting killed, right? We see it in John chapter 8, verse 59, which we just looked at two weeks ago. But it also happens in Luke chapter 4, when Jesus goes to Nazareth and he preaches from Isaiah. And they're so mad, his hometown, they're so mad at him, that they try and throw him off a cliff. But he escapes. So we, we get this sense that what Jesus was teaching and what Jesus was doing and the things that Jesus was claiming about himself were so dangerous that they could get him killed. And so I think the best explanation for the secrecy in Mark, where Jesus says, Shh, don't tell anyone, it's because it's not time yet. It's not time for him um, to come into the public eye in such a way that it will then result in his death. 
which shows you um, it would have resulted in his death if he'd been known publicly sooner. Um, again, we see that at the beginning of chapter 7 in John, right? He's not going to go down in public. He's not going to go and do it in the way people think a Messiah should come to power. He's saying, no, this is different. Plus, once they hear what I'm saying, it'll be over. They won't want me to be Messiah. They'll want me dead. So does that help with the question of secrecy? Why do you think he did that? So he puts the mud on his eyes, and he doesn't see immediately. He has to go and wash, and then he sees. I think you're right, Donna, because remember, there's theological import to this sign. There's, there's significance in this. It is an action that he did. He's not just lying there. Receive, he's saying, oh, I'm involved in my own healing. I'm involved in, um, in my, my faith. I'm involved in relationship with Jesus. Um, so um, what kind of washing do we have as Christians that bears a lot of theological and spiritual significance? Washing of feet. Jesus washes the disciples' feet. It's a sign of service to go wash and to wash another person. Um, there's also, you see it with John the Baptist. Remember what John the Baptist is doing. What was that? Baptizing. And then Jesus says, there's a different kind of baptism that Jesus offers. Baptism is an important thing. It's a cleansing of the body that has spiritual significance. When we baptize our babies at church, we just give them a little dip. But that little dip, because it's a sign, really is a sign, that little dip is a sign of the um, spiritual significance of being cleansed, having our um, souls cleansed, having um, receiving from God that forgiveness of sins that's offered through Jesus and being made into a new person, a new Deborah, not the old Deborah, but a new Deborah. Um, and that, that is um, something for me, if for those of you who were also baptized as infants, it's something that I relive primarily when I'm swimming. I was a diver and I love diving. And when you dive into the water, you go down, down, down. Then you go up, up, up. Right? And that's just like baptism. You die to yourself. You die to your sins. And you are raised in Christ as you rise up through the water. Um, so the washing is significant. It actually happened historically. It's what he told him to go do. But it also has theological significance. Any other differences that you see? I'm going to say there's mud here. I put it on your sheet in Genesis 2, verse 7, um, remember that Adam is made from the dirt, from the dust of the ground, from the clay. And some people think that Jesus here is referencing that specifically. He is showing, he's making a divine claim by using mud to recreate, to, um, to heal this man, to restore his body into what it was meant to be. He is recreating this man. And, and Jesus comes to recreate us spiritually. And it's through his birth, death, resurrection, ascension, and his return 
that all of creation will be restored to it, the glory that it really was meant to have from the beginning, restored to perfection, restored to beauty. And that, that will happen when Jesus returns. So this is the beginning of that happen, happening. This is the beginning of the restoration of all things in Jesus. So I know that's big, and you could say, well, but he might be literally alluding to that in using that clay. And it's, we're going to see next week it's going to get him into trouble having used the clay. So, um, yeah. Excuse me. It was believed in the ancient world that spit had medicinal purposes. So it, we don't think, we think of spit and we think, ooh, but there it was seen as being having healing properties. Not just the spit of human beings, but also of animals. So remember the parable of Lazarus, the beggar, and the dogs are licking his wounds? That the dogs, those ferocious dogs, would care about him so much that they would try to heal his wounds, that he was in such dire need and he was such a gentle soul that they would come up to him and lick his wounds. Saliva, it's weird. But um, one thing for you to look at on your own also is 2 Kings 5.10. You'll see that's another, another healing in scripture where someone is told to go and wash. And I'm going to touch on this. We're, as usual, running out of time. But sent to Siloam, um, the, John gives us nothing by accident. So why would he tell us, oh, Siloam, that pool that's called sent? That's the Hebrew means sent. And he gives us that in parentheses in John chapter 9, right? He tells us, go and wash in the pool of Siloam, is what Jesus says. In parentheses, John tells us, which means sent. He does this later on, and we'll look at it in the Passion Narrative. He does this for specific reasons. But what do you remember what, um, when people would ask Jesus in chapter 7 and 8, when they would ask him, where are you from? Well, you're from... You're from Galilee, and we know that the Messiah is not going to be from Galilee. The Messiah is going to be from Bethlehem. Or then they would say, well, you're from Galilee, and we know that when the Messiah comes, we won't know where the Messiah is coming. They kept con- contradicting themselves, remember? But the question of Jesus' origin was very important to them because it would tell them, they believed that if they knew where Jesus was from, then it would tell them who he was. Was he the Messiah? Is he the Messiah? And um, what we see is that this idea of being... Um, when Jesus answers their question, where are you from? Remember, he says, I'm from the Father. I'm from God. I am sent from God. And the word that he uses to say he is sent from God is that word from which we get apostle. It's the Greek word apostello, sent out. That Jesus is like the apostle from God, just as he would then send out the twelve as apostles to the known world to spread the good news of Jesus. Well, God comes specifically, or Jesus comes specifically from God with the message of salvation, with the actual salvation for us. So it's interesting that John is alluding to this, um, that Jesus is the sent one, the one sent from the Father, and that that will have implications for those who believe in him as well. Okay, so looking back at Chapter 9 of John. We're moving on now in the outline to the theological questions. And there is one big theological question that, um, that's actually asked by the disciples in this passage that Jesus then answers. 
Do you see what the disciples ask him? Who sinned? Do you see the assumption behind the question? Exactly. So the assumption there is that um, suffering is the direct result of specific sins. And this is often a question, we see this assumption in this worldview when um, sometimes well-meaning but um, unhelpful televangelists, usually it seems to be the latest televangelists, will say that such and such natural disaster was the result of sin in a specific place that's affected by the natural disaster, whether it be Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans, um, the 9-11 bombings and or, you know, planes crashing into the World Trade Center and into the Pentagon, whether it be that or that or anything. Uh, You could even see it happen. You might have, I hope, I hope to God that you haven't had this happen, but where someone said to someone in your life, well, you're experiencing that because of this in your life. That is not helpful. In Jesus, it's not helpful. And really, we don't know, do we? There's some sense in which there is a direct result between some specific sins and some form of suffering. And an example I've used before is that of a drunk driver in an accident. So um, suffering is in the world as a result of sin generally. And there, say a drunk driver had an accident, a car accident, and he was hurt physically as a result of that car accident. But then so also were the people in the other, he hit another car and other people were hurt as a result of his drunkenness. There's a correlation there where the sin affects him and he experiences significant suffering as a direct result of his own sin. And his own sin was the direct cause of that suffering. But the people who were innocent riding in the other car, they their suffering is not directly caused by any sin of their own, is it? So there's a sense in which suffering happens to the innocent, suffering happens to the guilty. Um, We are not, our job is not to find the direct correlation like the disciples are trying to do. They're trying to figure out which person sinned that caused this blindness. Um, Why does this blindness exist? And Jesus goes on, well, first of all, there's, an answer, and the question of who sin goes back, it's theological, goes back to Numbers 14, 18. And don't worry about finding it yourself. I'll just read it for you. And there um, Moses is talking about the character of the Lord. The Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression. But he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. That's where they're getting this theology. That's where the disciples are deriving this belief that someone else's sin directly caused, that God, the idea there is that God is allowing someone to suffer because of someone else's sin. With the drunk driving incident, that's true. He didn't intervene to prevent people from suffering as a result of one person's sin. But nor does he um, condone or take pleasure in the suffering of others and the suffering of the innocent. Um, there, we don't know why doesn't he intervene now, um, but we do know that the end of all history, when Jesus returns and there's judgment day, 
all of the wrongs in this world will be righted and there will be judgment and justice and all of the suffering of the world will be over. The innocent suffering will be over and even the guilty suffering will be over. Praise God. The things that um, are the direct result of our own sin um, or the things that other people are experiencing that are the direct result of their sin. But in response to this question, so in that, well, why is there uh, some effect of sin on other people, on the innocent? We don't know. It's just a part of our fallen world. Does God delight in it? No, but he will use it for his glory and for his purposes. And that's what we see when we look at, um, I put on your sheet, the answer. Jesus does not directly answer their question there, but he does answer that same question in Luke chapter 13, verses 1 through 5. Luke chapter 13, verses 1 through 5, it's so funny, Siloam is there as well. There were some present at that very time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And Jesus answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower of Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. This question and this answer is, I I am only taking a stab at it, so forgive me for doing it so quickly. Um, But I encourage you, if you are interested in this, um, specifically also this passage, um, Bishop Allison mentioned when he was here for our Lenten preaching series on Wednesday of Holy Week. He preached and he mentioned this passage from Luke, which is a difficult question. And it's the same question that the disciples are asking Jesus here in John. I hope you can see that. Um, And Jesus' answer is here is this answer in Luke informs also his answer in John. In Luke, he says to them, no, the greater suffering experienced by some people is not the result of their sin. It's not that they are worse sinners than anyone else. He says that very clearly. Clearly, no, (laughs) no, I tell you, no, they are not greater sinners. So um, heaven forbid that we look at someone in suffering and say that they are suffering because of their sin. God will judge, God knows. And the truth of the matter is that we are all sinners, even if we don't suffer the direct results of our sin. We are all sinners. And that's Jesus' answer to that question. No, I tell you, they're not greater sinners. And then he goes on. But unless you, and he's saying you all repent, you will all likewise perish. That there is judgment coming for us um, and that um, the the um, the just judgment for sin is death. The just consequences for sin is death. And he says that, even while in and of, that's the bad news. And yet, in and of his very own person, he brings the good news. And not just in what he says, but above all else, in what he does. And remember that, that in John, we are building, even as he does these things, these little healings, even as he um, speaks these words, these authoritative teachings that we just saw in chapter 7 and 8. He is building up. They are all building up to that moment of his death 
where he will once and for all um, embody that um, grace and mercy that God extends to us, that forgiveness of sins that will become available to us through him, through his death for us. And so it's for that reason that he can answer in John, and he says in John, no, it's this particular instance was not, the sin part doesn't matter. Just like in Luke, no, we've all sinned. We're not going to judge this person because we don't know, or you don't know. Jesus knows and God knows, but we don't know. But then um, the answer that Jesus gives them in chapter 9 can also be said to be true for suffering that we experience in our lives or that we see others that we love experiencing. Jesus says it was not why, in answer to the question why, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. The works of God are going to be displayed in this man's life. And then Jesus goes ahead and does it. And the works of God are not just this healing, this physical healing that will bring about physical sight for him. But as we'll see next week, he comes to spiritual sight. He comes to profess faith in Jesus Christ. He falls down at Jesus' feet and worships him as the word made flesh, as the light of the world who has brought him salvation, and salvation that has not just healed him physically, but saved his soul. And he recognizes that, that the physical salvation Jesus has brought him points to the greater, um, the spiritual salvation for um, eternity, that this man is saved because of who Jesus is and what he has done. Um, so Jesus presents this glory in the works, in the healing works that he does. And so this particular instance of suffering and very many of the instances of suffering in our lives and in the lives of those we love, we don't know why they happen. We don't know why God doesn't intervene even when his heart is grieved by our suffering, our sadness. But we know that one day when Jesus returns, as it says in Revelation 21, and we'll read this on Sunday, every tear will be wiped away. All of the wrongs will be made right because Jesus has borne in his own person um, both the condemnation for sin that's upon us all, but then also every single ounce of suffering that the world has ever known is, is there in the cross. And he takes it and he bears it upon his own person, so that even while we bear it, even as we undergo it, we know that he is on our side, that God is on our side, and that in the end, he will be glorified in our lives, even in the suffering that we experience. So that is how we can say, wow, Jesus is the light of the world, even in dark places. So let's pray, and then you can ask me some questions. Oh, Lord Jesus, we ask right now that even as you made your glory manifest in healing that man in Jerusalem long ago, we ask that today you would make your glory manifest to us. We ask that you would reveal to us the love of the Father, that he would not just leave us as we are, but that he would come and rescue us through you. Thank you for his love that... Um, shines throughout all history um, that we can see even now 2,000 years later in your life. Thank you for your love for us. And we ask that we would go forth with um, transformed hearts, um, with eyes that are full of hope 
as they look to you. So all of this we ask for your glory and for our benefit. And it's in your name that we pray, Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.